Welcome, everybody, to this week's edition of Spiniverse, Goucher Hillel's weekly podcast on the Torah portion with hot takes from students and staff. I'm Rabbi Josh. I'm the executive director. He, him, pronouns. I'm Ryan. I am one of the co-chairs for the Shabbat Committee of Goucher Hillel. I use she, her pronouns. My name is Leah. My pronouns are she, her, and I am the Hillel co-president. Awesome. All right. So we are getting uh, into a four portion kind of arc that, uh, oh man, I really should have intended that pun. Um, that is all about the, the Mishkan, the tabernacle. That is the, the holy place that the Jewish people are meant to build in the desert, uh, which, you know, construction issues, one might imagine materials. We'll get into all of that here. Um, but uh, let's let's go ahead and read the summary. So, anybody want to jump in? I can. Go for it. Uh, we have just learned that Moses ascended Mount Sinai and disappeared into a cloud where he communed with God on the mountain summit for forty days and forty nights. Beginning in Parshat Teruah, we start to learn about what it is that God and Moses discussed up there on the mountaintop. We learn about the building and. Instructions for the Mishkan, the tabernacle. What is astonishing is that the discussion of the Mishkan is about to take up the following five parshiot of the book of Exodus, and arguably much of the book of Leviticus, and part of the book of Numbers to boot. Why? What could possibly be so important about this structure that we need to hear so much about it and all of its painstaking detail? Keep going. Uh, in Teramah, God asks the children of Israel to donate gifts, terumah, for the building of the tabernacle so that God may dwell among them. Instructions for the, instructions for the construction of the ark, table, and menorah are provided. Detailed directions are given on how to build the tabernacle. All right, so it's going to be up to us to take what could be fairly uh, straightforward um, IKEA instructions um, and, you know, derive some meaning out of it and find, uh, find what there is in there. So it's a challenge that I, I put to you guys. So we're going to start in right with the beginning here with the beginning of the portion. Um, Leah, you want to take us in here? Sure. Um, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, tell the Israelite people to bring me gifts. You shall accept for me from every person whose heart so moves him. And these are the gifts you shall accept from them. Gold, silver, and copper, blue, purple, and crimson yarns, fine linen, goat's hair, oh, thank you, tanned ram skins, dolphin skins, and acacia wood, is that how it's pronounced? Oil for lighting, spices for the anoint, spices for the anointing oil and for the aromatic incense lapis lazuli and other stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. All right. There it begins. Hot takes guys. Very specific. <laughs> oh, it's about to get specificer. <laughs> what I like about this is all of the things I think he's accepting are like material goods, like what you would find like among humans. And the whole purpose of like the tabernacle is so that God can dwell among them. And I think 
maybe maybe I'm reading a little bit too much into it, but he's asking for material goods because I think a lot of humans connect to material goods or they find and can put meaning behind material goods along with prayer. Nice. I think this like gives me a throwback to like my Jewish day school days because I do remember a very intense discussion about the line that I may dwell among them, whether it's referring to the items or the people. And I think with Ryan, what you said kind of like is the connection because like these are the items that mean something to the people. So in a way where the two could kind of intertwine, I mean like let me dwell among the things that are important to you so I can kind of understand you more. So that was kind of an interesting point that I feel like brings those two things together in a way I hadn't thought of before. Yeah. Leah brings up also another good point that this is like super specific. Like, will he only accept these things in order to dwell among us if that's the plot line we're going with? Or like, let's say, I don't know, I don't have purple. Can I give him orange? Will he spite me? Nope. Again, that you know what? That goes back to that my uh, verse two gifts uh, from every person whose heart so moves him. So there's some sense of like it's voluntary, right? And maybe, you know, it could be everything, but no, there is this much more specific list of things that are supposed to be there. And Leah, you point out something really good here, which is that question of like, is God there in the material? Is God there amongst the people? Do we need a material sanctuary in order for God to dwell dwell amongst us? You know, is a is a, a big theoretical, philosophical question here too. Um, and maybe just to kind of stray from the portion for a minute, you know, just asking you guys like sacred space. You know, how do you create something that feels like a sacred space? Um, what would you want if you were creating something that felt like a sacred space to you, or what has felt like a sacred space to you? Uh, for me, a sacred space is like, for me, a place where I can feel all of my emotions and be validated in them and feel comfortable feeling my emotions in a safe space, along with feeling like I can protect my space and protect myself within that space. So I think what it comes down to is a feeling of security for me, at least. Um, that's how I build a space. I think what I would say, a big part of it would be like, a space that feels kind of like a community. I know that's a really big part of Judaism in general is community and supporting one another. And that's something that's really emphasized at my own synagogue at home and even virtually kind of trying to create that because it's such an important part of Judaism and kind of, at least in my perspective, also part of that sacred feeling as well. And I think that's kind of part of why like even casual spaces that have kind of like that feeling of community are still just really special like locations. Like if we're talking about on campus, I hang out in the Hillel lounge with my friends and eat snacks and do homework. And that's a really special place for us because it's kind of like where we formed kind of our community in that space. Yeah. And the words I think around them in English too, it's interesting, you know, like also speak to that, like 
you talk about a sacred space, it's the idea that it's made holy by the acts of the ways that you treat it, the way that you like use the space. Sanctuary related to that is what we call this thing, right? And if you're at your home synagogue, you probably have a room in the synagogue that is the sanctuary, which is usually where like services happen. But the whole building is called a synagogue. It's not called the sanctuary, which comes from the Greek for like gathering place. So that kind of goes, Leah, to your point about a communal space. Um, and interestingly here, this is not necessarily a communal space because not everybody is allowed to be in this place. God is there. Moses is there. There's like really, there's a whole question of kind of access, but the people are around it and somehow it sort of stands for God in there. And it'll have an interesting interplay with the whole golden calf story foreshadowing a little bit later, but I'm going ahead here just uh, for, for use of time. Um, and, uh, let me see. So I actually brought in a, uh, commentary here, um, Rashi, who is, uh, a 10th century French German scholar who kind of like takes a lot of the midrash and things that came before to try and explain some basic questions about the portion. So I, one of the questions I always have is what is this stuff? What are we talking about? Right. Um, and also like, how did the people get it? because they're journeying through the wilderness. So Rashi has some takes here. Ryan, you want to get into this? Because I think you had some good, good ideas about material. Uh, and blue and purple will dyed with the blood of the, of a shellfish, a kind of shellfish. Chilazon. 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 The color of which was greenish blue and red purple wool colored with a kind of dye, the name of which is. is shesh. Vashesh. Yeah. Vashesh. Uh, this is what we call linen. It's goat hair. Therefore, Oneklos translates it by... I know. Umeaze. Umeaze. Which denotes something that comes from the goats. Not the goats themselves. For the Aramaic translation of... Uh, Azia. Isaiah. Red. They were dyed... They were dyed red after having been tanned. Tachash was a kind of wild beast. And this is Tachash. dolphin skins, by the way, it says in the, in the, what we read as translation said dolphin skins. That's the one where I have the biggest question, like dolphin skins in the desert, right? Questions. Yeah. Something isn't adding up. Right. So um, go for it. It existed only at that time when Israel built the tabernacle. It was multicolored and therefore it is translated in the Targum by. Sasgona. And it is so translated because it delights sas sas and prides itself in its colors. Gona. Um, but from where did they get this in the wilderness? Rabbi Tahuma explained it thus: Our father Jacob foresaw by the gift of the Holy Spirit that Israel would once build a tabernacle in the wilderness. He therefore brought cedars to Egypt and planted them there, and bade his children take these with them when they would leave. Egypt. Egypt. All right. So there's some fancy footwork going on here to uh, describe how they got all this stuff because it's not that uh, obvious and, and all of that. And, you know, depends on a lot of things about what you believe about the Torah and its authorship and the authorship of different texts within the Torah. Some would say that the authorship of some of this text comes later once we're already kind of living in the land of Israel. And there's at least the, the beginnings of the tabernacle, if not the temple that's in Jerusalem. Um, so 
some of that is kind of some of the explanation here, but this is some interesting explanation that goes into it. What do you guys think about this stuff? You know, where they got the stuff from? Maybe that's why they were in the desert for so long. They had to find all this stuff and go find a dolphin somewhere. Yeah, like Minecraft. You know, they needed to go to different places in the desert and find different things and dig them up and build. Yeah. Yeah. It also doesn't really, ex it explains how they maybe got like a single part of the tabernacle, but it doesn't really explain like where they got the dolphin hide. It's just like Jacob knew we would be leaving and he said, plant these. And it's just like, it's kind of like when you go to the movie theater and somebody's like, how are you doing? And they're like, oh, nothing much. Like, it kind of makes sense, but also didn't answer the question. Like, great, I'm really happy they planted cedars. I want to know about the gosh darn dolphin hide. Yeah, so apparently it was this like multicolored animal. Think about like, you know, I think I'm, I'm picturing like, you know, if like an oil slick or gas gets on the ground and you can kind of see like the sun reflected in it and it kind of glints off it in that way where it's kind of rainbowy, you know, I'm picturing like an animal that has like a hide that does that. Um, we don't, as far as I know, have any zoological evidence of such an animal existing. I think I figured it out. Go for it, Ryan. The shellfish and stuff, they crossed the Red Sea, and as they were, like, walking through the big tunnel of water, they saw the animals, and they're like, ha, gonna take that, probably gonna need it at some point. <laughs> they just That's carried the it with them the with. whole way until they needed it. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah, it depends on the route. They could have been going along the southern edge of the Sinai and back up the other side, and they're on the Red Sea, and the... Um, you know, the Gulf of Aqaba there, like maybe, you know, I guess, but yeah, yeah, that, that definitely does beg that question. All right. Uh, well, you know, I'm not sure we're going to answer this question any more satisfactorily than Rashi did, but we certainly uh, looked at it. Let's look at the next part here. All right. So now we're going to this arc thing. So when you think of an arc, what do you picture? A boat. A boat. Noah's Ark. Nice. All right. Except here's the weird thing. The word in Hebrew for the Ark that we're talking about in the temple is a different word than the word that was used for Noah. So Noah's is called a Teva, and this one is called an Aron. So interestingly, in English, they are the same. They, that same word is used for both. Um, but I think of, you know, like where the Torahs are held in a synagogue. You know, that's an Ark. It's a big cabinet, right? Um, and to some extent, it takes its name from this, but this is different. Um, so you might want to think a little bit more Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark here, because that's that's actually what we're talking about. If you, you know, think about that scene at the end of the movie. Um, all right. Uh, I'll read this one. Exactly as I show you, very specific. The pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, so you shall make it. All right, no deviation. This is not a creative uh, course. You have to kind of follow the instructions to the letter. They shall make an arc of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. All right, stop there. And then we'll do, we'll actually, you know what, let's do a little more arc before we talk. Um, and deposit in the arc the tablets of the pact, which I will give you. 
Um, you shall make a cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. Make two cherubim of gold and make them of hammered work at the two ends of the cover. Make one cherub at the one end and the other cherub at the other end. At one piece with the cover shall you make the cherubim at its two ends. The cherubim shall have their wings spread out above, shielding the cover with their wings. They shall confront each other, the faces of the cherubim being turned toward the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark, after depositing inside the ark the pack that I will give you. There, there I will meet with you, and I will impart to you from above the cover, from between the two cherubim that are on top of the ark of the pact, all that I will command you concerning the Israelite people. Stop in there. OG Ikea, but without pictures. What is a cubit? <laughs> okay, so a cubit is uh, approximately a foot and a half. Um, it's the length from your elbow, at least as it was measured in the ancient times, the length from your elbow to the tip of your middle finger. And that's why this, uh, yeah, parts of this, of this on your body are called cubital, actually. So, yeah, you know, because people didn't have rulers and stuff around all the time. So they had to use parts of their body to measure stuff. So approximately, if you're talking about something two and a half cubits long, so 18 inches, somebody do some math here. I know it's been, a, it's been a minute. Um, let's see, that's three, uh. Three feet, three feet, nine inches long or so. And a cubit and a half wide is uh, 27 inches wide. So, you know, two feet and three inches wide. Um, somebody will tell me in the comments whether I got that wrong. So, yeah. All right. So we got this big box with this cover and these cherubim and it's very specific. I was very surprised by the, the cherubs. I, I don't I don't know if I've ever seen at least in my experience going and like like my synagogue has an arc like whatever but I think it's interesting how specific they are and how you mentioned it's like not a creative process because I feel like now a lot of synagogues do put a lot of effort into like really nice and like beautification of their arc and it's not really made of the kind of like wood that um, they were explaining. So I think it's interesting how like some parts of the explanation stay the same where it's like what you should have it and that kind of thing. But kind of like, it's also changed in terms of like, I, I don't think there are cherubs on my arc. Maybe I'm wrong, but well, there's <laughs> I don't actually... think so. And they've gotten like a lot more creative with it. So I do think that's interesting how like the root has stayed the same, but I think in even highly observant Jewish communities, I might be wrong about this, but the kind of creativity that's allowed with it has kind of spread out. Yeah, and some of that actually has to do with the synagogue versus the temple. Yeah. So, you know, the temple was a very specific place that was like, this place is the place where this is gonna happen. And, you know, even the temple in Jerusalem, which is a static um, structure versus this, which is a movable structure. They take this apart and they re, reconstruct it every time that they go from one place to another, right? So this is pretty pretty hard to carry. Um, and they actually have a whole tribe that's dedicated to carrying this stuff, you know, everywhere. That's the tribe of Levi. Um, and uh, so it's different because synagogues are actually not supposed to do exactly like the temple. There's some rabbinic instructions later that are basically like, yeah, you can do something that's kind of like the temple, but not exactly. And definitely don't make pictures of cherubs because that was only the temple don't do that now. And there's also this whole question about graven images. So some people, some synagogues will interpret that saying, basically, you shouldn't have pictures of human forms 
or even potentially of animal forms. Um, and that's this whole question about like sacred art. You know, in Muslim scripture, basically the idea is you can't make anything that represents anything in nature. So Muslim art is often pretty like abstractly representative or patterns and things like that. Jewish, uh, like holy art is a little bit more flexible, but often you won't see exact replicas of the types of things that you could see in the temple. Um, which is why we don't really like, um, instinctively know what this looks like. We have to sort of imagine some of it. And a cherub, by the way, I, I don't think it's supposed to look like the little Cupid that came on your Valentine's Day card, right? It's supposed to be some other kind of angel thing. I'd have to go into the commentary, honestly, to look at this, but it's kind of not human exactly in form quite as much as you might think. I know confusing and I don't really have an easy answer for that. What, what do you, uh, and then there's this idea of this one spot, right? Which is like, okay, Moses, you went up to the mountain and you talked to me for 40 days up there. Well, I can't move the mountain with us. So everywhere we go, you can't keep going back to that same mountain or we're never going to get to where we're getting to. So I kind of need a portable, uh, talk, talking box to talk with you. And that's what this is going to be. Um, which is kind of interesting. The idea that God would be concentrated in one spot in, in some way. So, any of your takes on that idea? Uh, for me, it's almost a little bit like contradictory because up above, he's like, bring me all these things. Here's what I will accept. And then he's like, but put my commandments in this tiny little box, please. Very ornate. It's it's very like it. The, the different levels of specificity that come from the two passages is very interesting because the first one is like, if you're if it's voluntary yeah you know i would love it if you came from your heart and this one and he's like you will do exactly as i tell you you mess up and i will smite you i don't think he said that but i'm taking it as like you mess up that's foreshadowing by the way for uh Mot and um well no it's uh kadoshim i think well, it's one of the parshas that's in, that's in Leviticus. I'll have to look it up later, where Aaron's sons do something that they're not exactly supposed to do. Um, but it doesn't say here directly, I will smite you. No, but, I don't. You know, but you're not far the general, off. You're not that's far the general off. vibe I'm getting from yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. That's the ominous. Do this right or else. Um, the other thing that kind of stood out to me is like, he talks for a really long time about the, cher the cherubs. Like, that's a big bulk of the the passage, like how the cherubs will look, what they'll be made of, where they'll be placed, what they'll be doing. And I I don't know off the top of my head, but I don't know if like cherubs are mentioned anywhere else. Uh, are they mentioned anywhere else than in this passage? They are mentioned other places in this passage. The last time we've seen the word, uh, I think, and I'm not a walking concordance, but I did look at this, I think, is in Genesis when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Garden of Eden and there's a cherub stationed to make sure they don't get back in. Um, so think about, and it's supposed to, and there's a flaming sword also that's always rotating or something like that. So, so cherubs are guardians almost. Yes, yes, exactly. Cherubs are okay. guardians. So that sort of brings this like, a little, brings it a little bit more into focus. Um, like putting two cherubs with their wings covering, almost like guarding the holy, the art, the pact, um, which I think is actually, I think I've seen a picture of this in one of my classes. It was like a, it was really beautiful. And one of the things like we discussed, but it, we talked about it here is that 
it looked like angels, but they had wings and angels. It's like never specified in the Torah that angels really have wings. Um, so I wonder like what the wings are on here. Yeah. And angels, there's a, there's like not just one kind of angel in uh, um, Jewish literature. There's a bunch of them. These cherubs might sort of be part of that. The word angel in Hebrew is malach, which really just means like a messenger. So there can be these other divine beings and beasts that we hear about um, that are not necessarily all the same looking, but yeah, which is interesting. Yeah. God uses them here. Um, and then the idea that in this box is the ark is, is the, the pact, which is essentially, I think, the Ten Commandments, although potentially it's also all the words of the Torah, because one understanding is that Moses writes down the entire Torah um, and that it's kind of kept, you know, in a way. Um, so what's in the box? It's a real good question. Uh, if you want to watch the end of Freighters of the Lost Ark, it doesn't go so well for the Nazis who try and open the box. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Um, okay. Well, let me see. Any other thoughts about the arc this time around? I think that's kind of all the time we have, all that we're going to today. Next week, Titzaveh, we go into some more of the specifics of the larger part of the Mishkan itself, along with some of the other like um, accessories, let's say. Um, that we're going to see in the Mishkan. And it'll give us a chance to be able to kind of look and think about like, okay, we've got this ark, we've got this thing. What really makes sacred space for our ancestors? And also like, you know, what might make sacred space for us? Cool, guys. Thank you for this amazing episode of Spiniverse. See you next week. Spiniverse is a production of Goucher Hillel. If you'd like to look at the text that we've been studying today, Take a look at the link in our episode description. Have a wonderful week.